Amen. Merry Christmas to you. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, where Carl read from a little earlier. As we gather today, we find ourselves at the intersection of anticipation and fulfillment. In this fourth and final sermon in our series um, on the servant songs, we will dive this morning into a passage that has captivated theologians and preachers uh, for many, many years, uh, even centuries. Isaiah delivers to us a prophecy uh, of this suffering servant, but it would help first if I knew where the book of Isaiah was. There she is, right there. Isaiah 52, we'll start in verse 13, and we're going to work our way through the end of chapter 53. Um, so a good passage this morning, one that is not easy to preach in one given Sunday, as we'll see in just a moment. There's five sections here, and I could easily see taking five weeks to do so. Uh, several of you have asked if our Christmas Eve service was a abbreviated condensed service. And I'm happy to report, no, it is not. Uh, you get the full service this morning. And so uh, so we do have a task before us. Honestly, what some would consider one of the, uh, one of the premier passages in all the Old Testament. Some would even say it's only second to uh, Jeremiah's words of the new covenant that Christ will bring. But this gives us a very beautiful picture of who Christ is and what he does and the, as especially as we think about uh, the, the Christmas story this morning and the part that it plays um, in the gospel narrative this morning is what we will see. Now, as we said, Isaiah delivers to us this prophecy of this suffering servant. And we've said uh, these past four weeks that we're working through these servant songs. And so the question is, who is the suffering servant? And each of us have kind of addressed that to a degree. Uh, but this morning, I think it is helpful to, uh, to know and to be reminded that it was not always clearly seen as Christ. We, these uh, past few weeks... Hopefully you know uh, that it is Christ uh, who is this uh, who is this this servant this suffering servant as we'll see this morning. Uh, but some have looked to it being Israel corporately. Some even have said Isaiah. But of course we believe it is the Messiah that we'll make another strong case for this morning. But just so you know, um, just there is some biblical support of some confusion, if you will. Go with me to Mark's gospel real quick, and we're going to see. Peter here in Mark chapter 8 and we'll see his confusion as we think about Christ the Messiah having to suffer as we talk about the suffering servant this morning Mark 8 31 read a few verses there and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again he said this plainly so no confusion right plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now just think about that, right, just for a moment. Jesus is preaching, and he says there's no confusion. He is preaching plainly, and Peter says, Jesus, I appreciate your, your message, but let's, let's have a little sidebar. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you 
are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So whenever Jesus was teaching his disciples that he would suffer, the Son of Man, that the Messiah must suffer, that was a foreign concept to Peter. And as we know, he indeed did suffer. And that's what we will see this morning as we look at this, uh, this fourth and final installment of the servant songs and the suffering servant a little clarification from last week. Uh, Adam emphasized the capital S servant. I didn't even think to count Adam and me. It was, it was a lot, right? It was a capital S servant as we think about Christ. And he did say in there that James Terrence borrowed that term. I think he actually stole that term, but I want to be a little nicer. So he borrowed that term. But a little further investigation this week, we found out that James did not. And that was an original James Terrence uh, idea, the capital S servant. So Adam wanted to give proper credit this morning uh, to James. Uh, but I'm very thankful for men who, who love the Word and who love each other and are committed to preaching God's Word. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to our text this morning. As we go from chapter 52, verse 13, to the end of uh, chapter 53, we're going to see uh, these, uh, these verses. They're actually structured in a very specific way. There are five stanzas. We, as we said, these are the servant songs, and this song has stanzas. There's five stanzas, and each of these five stanzas have three verses. So you can do some math there. These 15 verses are broken into five stanzas, each with three verses verses and we're going to see even something more uh, specific and special about the middle stanza in a moment but they're bookended with exaltation uh, we read a whole text while ago i'm going to kind of break it up here in just a moment but we'll see the first stanza uh, the, at the end of, of chapter 52 and in the last stanza at the end of chapter 53 both speak to the exaltation of this servant who is christ and so, these, uh, so we're going to see a lot of clear structure to our text this morning. Um, and this first uh, verse of, of each stanza actually summarizes the stanza. So let's take a look at that. We'll read these five verses. So when you start in uh, verse 13 of chapter 52, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. That summarizes those three verses. And then you go to verse 1 of 53. Who has, believed, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so we're going to look at the revelation there. And so that encapsulates those next few verses. And then in uh, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, which summarizes those next few verses. And then down in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth and it encapsulates there in those few verses what is happening. And then in verse 10 again, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so we see these, these, the, these verses, these stanzas, we see a lot of structure to this fourth song of the servant, which is going to help us in our time this morning. So this first one, if you will, as we go back to verse 13, uh, as we look at these five stanzas, we're going to uh, command one another, if you will, to look at these. And so this first one is, Behold the servant's exaltation. So when you go to, let's just read these first three verses, 
in Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And so let's pray this morning as we begin. Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you for, um, for Carl reading this for us in its entirety, Lord. I thank you for this clean structure that we have this morning to look at it. But help us, Lord, not to, not to miss this morning the beauty of Christ as we celebrate on this Christmas Eve is coming as we'll look at his suffering and his sorrow and his death and his resurrection but most of all at his at his reign and his exaltation and his second coming so help us to see clearly this morning your word in Christ's name we do pray amen so these five stanzas, the first we're going to look at is this. Behold the servant's exaltation. Behold the servant's exaltation. And so Isaiah begins this song with looking to the Messiah, looking to the servant, looking to who we know is Christ with a, uh, with a mindset, with a heart of exaltation. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted now that word behold, it doesn't seem like a necessarily interesting word at first glance. It doesn't seem significant, but it is an imperative to look or to see. That is the meaning of this word behold, to look or to see. And it's a command, an imperative to look and to see. Behold is effectively the last of a string of commands that Isaiah has given his readers, and which begin in 51. And we'll just kind of look at these briefly. When you start in Isaiah 51, in verse 1, he says, listen. In verse 2, he says, look. In verse 4, he says, give. In verse 9, he says, awake. He says, awake several times in there. Um, and so we see all through Isaiah, Isaiah 51, starting in verse 51, and you can look at more uh, references there. He is calling his readers. He is calling their attention. He is commanding them. He wants their attention to look at this servant. And now he's calling them to look at this suffering servant. So it is an imperative to look and to see. Isaiah is calling his readers to look and to see, to behold that this servant it is he who is to be exalted, high, lifted up, and exalted. And so why? Why is this servant? Why should, be, why should he be exalted? Why should he be high? Why should he be lifted up? Because the servant is not Isaiah. The servant is not corporate Israel. The servant is the Messiah. He is Christ. That is why he can be exalted. There is a command nowhere in Scripture to worship anyone other than God. And so he says this servant who will act wisely he is to be lifted up high and exalted because he is Christ but then there's this surprising twist this servant who is to be lifted high who is to be lifted up who is to be exalted who is to be worshiped who is to be uh, commands our attention and then there is this twist 
in verse 14 where it says, As many of you were astonished at, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so we see this exalted servant. We see Christ, this Messiah, will suffer. He will suffer immeasurably. He will suffer more than we can imagine. And so Isaiah looks towards the cross as he describes the suffering servant as one who will be marred beyond recognition. We're going to see Isaiah as he goes through this song here. He's kind of in and out of a timeline. It doesn't follow sequentially. And so hopefully it will, it will make sense as we go through it. But he's look, he started off exalting this servant and he reminds us and he points us to ultimately we know as the cross that he will be marred and he will, be, he, will, he will experience suffering and sorrow. But he looks towards the cross. And we know of the brutal crucifixion, uh, the process that was practiced by the Romans. Indeed, Jesus was marred. Indeed, his, um, his, uh, he went beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind, as we know, the torturous practices of the Romans. Christ was brutally beat by the soldiers even before ascending the hill of Golgotha. He endured this for us, as we'll be reminded of this morning. But then Isaiah, he quickly turns to the work of Christ in redemption. So he starts with exalting him, then he goes, he points us to the ultimate, to the cross, and to the suffering. But then he says in verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now what does this word sprinkle mean? Actually, I looked at several different translations in the ESV, the King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, all use this word sprinkle. But in the ESV, it gives a note that it means uh, to startle. But that, which is actually not a very good translation, startle. So what does sprinkle mean? The Hebrew word here um, shows up 22 times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to the hallowing process, which is the process of making something holy, of setting it apart for use of the Lord and for God Himself. And nowhere does this verb, is it ever translated, startle or jump up. So we see that ultimately Christ is going to make holy many nations. So he is to be exalted. He's going to suffer. But then he's going to make holy many nations. So this is what Isaiah is pointing to. That, that the Messiah will set these nations apart for himself. Thus he will bring salvation to many peoples. And so what does this mean for us? As we look at it, it's really the heart of the missionary call. It is the heart of the missionary call to exalt Jesus regardless of our physical well-being so that the nations may know Him. And so even in the very beginning, it's just in this first stanza, we just see the gospel is on display here. That to exalt Christ regardless of our health, regardless of our well-being, so that the nations may know Him. Behold the servant's exaltation. Secondly, not only do we have this command to behold the servant's exaltation, secondly, we have a command to behold the servant's revelation. Behold the servant's revelation. We see who the servant is. In chapter 53 there, starting at verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and a man acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I don't know about you, that, that hurts me to read that. To think about who Christ is and how he was received and how he was perceived by those who experienced him on earth. But we are to behold the servant's revelation. And not only do we believe in the servant of God because of what we've heard, Isaiah says, but because of what we've experienced and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. So this is the revelation. The arm of the Lord is being revealed ultimately in the person of Christ, in this servant. Whenever we hear of the arm of the Lord, we should call to mind his work through his might and his power that God is actively and powerfully working in creation. And it is Christ, it is this Messiah that he uses to continue his work and to bring about his work of salvation that we'll see. The Messiah has come to do the work and the will of God. It says the servant shot up like a young plant. It means that he, he had the form um, of humanity. That he was like one of us. But like a root out of the dry ground. And so he did not come from this fertile ground, so to speak. He came from humble beginnings. And we'll see the humility of Christ and the sorrow of Christ. It reminds us even of uh, Isaiah 11.1, 1, where it, uh, it, it gives us the picture of Christ coming from a shoot of the stump of Jesse. Where are you from? I'm from dry ground and a stump. Not the, the place that you would expect to hear of the beginnings of our King and our Savior Christ. But this is the picture that Isaiah paints for us. And honestly, this is the heart of Christmas. Christ has come in flesh, born of a man, not partial man, truly man, and truly God. He has come. But we are reminded here of the humble nature of our Savior that he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We were reminded of the humble nature of our Savior. No form, no majesty, no beauty. The God of creation, the epitome of majesty and beauty, had none. When he took on flesh, there was nothing special about him from the outside. Even the details surrounding his birth, it was not a hallmark moment. I took the opportunity this week at our weekly Bible study at work to kind of go through uh, the Christmas story and to de-romanticize it. I don't know if that's a word, but we took the, some of the glamour out. You know, we, we have so many nativity scenes and, and movies and different displays and stuff that oftentimes just make it seem like this beautiful, quaint little moment that was just so sweet. And obviously there was majesty happening but it did not come in the circumstances that you would expect for the God of the universe to be born 
So when you look at the realistic understanding of Jesus' birth and you think about Bethlehem and the kind of town that it was and the shepherds and uh, just kind of their sketchy occupation, if you will, the manger and being a horse trough, even that silent night, it indeed was silent and there was no fanfare whenever he was first born. And so not what we often see. Go with me to Philippians real quick as we think about the humble beginnings of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 4. We'll start in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see there in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And so Jesus took on humility, and he did so willingly as we will see. It has been revealed to us that the Messiah was one who was acquainted with grief and with sorrow. And so what does that mean for us? Is that we have a faithful high priest who can identify with us, who empathizes with us. He relates to our sorrow. He relates to our hurt. He relates to our pain. He is not a savior removed from the reality of this broken, sinful world. But he is one who has endured it. So behold... The servant's revelation. Thirdly, behold the servant's crucifixion. Behold the servant's crucifixion. So we come now to this middle stanza. And it is no accident that it's in the middle and sits at the center of these five stanzas of the servant song. And the location of verses oftentimes is an important element to interpretation and understanding Scripture. So we have this, this fourth song here in the climax of the series of this messianic prophecy about the suffering servant. And located right in the center of these, these five stanzas of these three verses. As let's turn our attention to him. Surely he, Christ, the suffering servant, the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, it summarizes the gospel. It tells us what Christ has done. Christ has taken on the sin of his people. He suffers at the cross so that we might have peace with God in a way that we could never have peace. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.21. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time. And we go often to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
This is the heart of the gospel that he, he swapped. We call it the great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. We deserve death and hell. We deserve all the, all the, the sorrow that Christ endured. We deserve it and he deserved none of that. The sinless Son of God was sentenced as a sinner so that sinners could be seen as sons of God. This is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners. And he did so on the cross. He did so for all of those who would look to him in faith and repentance. So behold the servant's crucifixion. Before we move on, I, I can't help but to say, and excuse me for being so frank, when you look at the, the middle of the middle. So you got this middle stanza. There's three verses. You look at the middle verse. So you look at Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And there is a, a sinful teaching in the church that will look to Isaiah 53, 5. And point to that as God promises us our physical healing. And if you or anyone you know listens to someone who turns to Isaiah 53.5 as a promise of God's prosperity or physical healing, you need to turn them off. Plain and simple. Because the healing that God brings us through Christ is not a physical healing. He brings us a spiritual healing. He brings us an eternal healing. He brings us a healing that is far greater than any healing of cancer or sickness or disease, any of that. This is the healing that we receive from Christ. It's an eternal healing for those who look to Him. So behold the servant's crucifixion. Fourthly, fourthly behold the servant's submission. Behold the servant's submission. Starting there in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. So this, perfect, this perfect suffering servant, this perfect Savior, Christ, that no deceit was found in his mouth, no violence was found in his hands, no sin ever committed by him, endured this oppression, endured this sorrow. But yet he submitted to it. So behold the servant's submission. We cannot fathom the oppression and the affliction endured by Christ. We cannot. Two things that make this, his suffering exponentially worse. And we could go into the details of, of, of the, the atrocities that he suffered on the cross. Even before the cross as he was beaten. Even the, 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 the suffering he endured as, as he lived and his ministry. The two things that make all the sufferings endured by Christ exponentially worse. One is that he was the only one to ever live who did not deserve 
to suffer and die. We say it often here. What do we deserve? Death, hell, and the grave. We deserve to suffer. We deserve pain. We deserve nothing good in our life because of the sin nature that we have and the sin that we choose to commit every single day. But here is Christ who does not deserve it, who has lived a perfect life, who is God Himself, who is truly God and truly man, and yet He is the recipient of sorrow and of oppression. And He willfully submits. And secondly, what makes this exponentially worse is that at any moment, with a single word, He could have ceased the suffering that He was enduring. A single moment, a single word, he could have stopped it because he is the God of the universe. He was truly man and he was still truly God. He had a host of angels at any moment would have done his will, but he did not. He submitted to the will of God. People suffer because they have no choice. How many of you this year have chosen to suffer? Said, sign me up for pain and suffering in 2023. Nobody. Hopefully we endure it. We walk through it looking to Christ and trusting in Him and knowing that God is sovereign over our suffering, that He uses our suffering, but no one chooses it. It's imposed on them. Yet the suffering servant submitted to the plan and will of God, and he willingly submitted to this suffering. Go with me to John chapter 10. We'll start in verse 7. John 10, 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go on in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for his sheep. And in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Just love the powerful teachings of Jesus. He makes it clear he's laying down his life. He makes it clear he's going to endure suffering for his people, for his sheep. But he said, make no mistake. I have the power. I have the ability to not. I have the power that no one takes this from me. No one makes me suffer. I do so in glad submission. Behold the servant's submission. And fifthly, Behold the servant's work in salvation. Back to Isaiah. Behold the servant's work in salvation. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So, lastly, we look at our, our suffering servant. And we are commanded to behold the servant's work in salvation. Who killed the servant? Who sent Christ to the cross? Was it Pilate? Was it Herod? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Yes, to all of those. They all had a part in that. Was it us? Absolutely. It was our sin that Christ went to the cross to die. But those were all part of God's divine plan. It was the will of the Father that Christ should suffer and die in order that we, His people, His sheep, would have peace and everlasting life. God didn't just sit by and let it happen. God decreed that it would happen. It was God's divine plan that it would happen. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put him to grief. So we see the Father's active plan and the suffering servant's role in that plan was to suffer, was to die. But we know that was not the end of it. It was the end of his humility and it was the end of our hopelessness, but it was not the end of his servant. His death and resurrection secured our salvation. It was His death and resurrection that secured our salvation. <coughs> Romans 10.9, again, we often point to and had the privilege of sharing this week. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And on down a few verses in verse 18, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So our salvation is made available because Christ willingly submitted Himself to sorrow and to suffering and to the cross. And He died a brutal death, a sinner's death. And He took on the sin of all of His people for all time that we might have life, life abundantly. And we see twice on the end of this, this stanza here, in verses 11 through 12, we see that Christ died for the many. He didn't die for everyone or else everyone would be saved. Those whom He died for, those whom His blood is poured out for and His body is broken for, are His. And who are His? All of those who will look to Christ in faith and repentance. Christ died for all of His people. And all of those who return to Him will be saved. Behold the servant's work in salvation. 
So as we sit here this morning on Christmas Eve and we think about the remarkable journey of the suffering servant from his exaltation and his humiliation and his work in salvation, let us recognize that Christmas is far more than just the celebration of a birth. The coming of Christ was a significant moment in the gospel narrative. Christ's first coming was marked by humility, rejection, and sacrifice, and it is the foundation of hope and salvation for us. The story of the suffering servant points us to the love of God for His people. And so this Advent season, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, let us also remember and think upon His life, His suffering, and His victory over sin and death. Advent is not only a time to remember Christ's first coming, which we often think about, but it's also a time to anticipate and to look for and to long for His second coming. Just as Isaiah and the remnant of Israel long for the Messiah's arrival, we too look for with eager expectation to the day that Christ returns for His bride. A day when the fullness of God's plan will be revealed and every tear will be wiped away and whenever we dwell in the presence of our Savior forever and sin is no longer. So as we conclude our series on Advent and the songs of the servant, let us not only cherish the memory of a baby in a manger, but embrace the life-changing truth of the gospel. Let us live in light of Christ's first coming and in the hope of His glorious return. This is the true message of Advent, the profound story of God with us from the manger to the cross and beyond to eternity. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank You for this morning. We thank You for a chance to uh, turn to Your Holy Word and to be reminded of Christ who is the suffering servant. And Lord, as we continue in our service, Lord, as we sing, as we come to the communion table, as we have an opportunity to give, and as we leave, and just Christmas Eve, as we celebrate Christmas these next couple of days, may all of these things be motivated by what Christ has done for us. May we look to Him in faith and repentance. If there is one here who has never done so, who has never trusted in Christ, may this morning they look to Him and belief and repentance. Thank you for your word. Help us to respond in faith in these next few moments. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.